Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Pressbox Thoughts. Once again, I'm your host, Ted Brennan. Thank you all so much for the support on the last episode. My interview with Bladen Kirk was so much fun and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, if you have anything you want to listen to or anybody you want me to try and interview on the podcast, tweet me or email me. My information is always linked below. I have a really good episode on tap today filled with more Miami content, the world of sports, with help from a special guest. So let's get started. The Battle of the Bricks took place last week with Miami traveling to Athens to take on the OU Bobcats. The game looked ugly going into the third quarter with the Bobcats leading 28-zip, but Brett Gabbert and Jack Sorensen started chipping away at the lead. Gabbert found Jalen Walker for a 51-yard touchdown to get on the board, and then Gabbert found Sorensen soon thereafter on a 15-yard score to make it 28-13. In the fourth quarter, Gabbert tossed a 9-yard touchdown to Mack Hippenhammer, making it 28-19. Sorensen and Gabbert connected again in the fourth for an 81-yard bomb, cutting the lead to 28-26. After a Demontre Tuggle score for OU, Miami answered back with another Hippenhammer touchdown, the first two-touchdown game of Hippenhammer's Miami career. Congrats. Unfortunately for Miami, time was not on their side. As time expired, Miami's epic comeback attempt fell two points short. Gabbert finished with five touchdowns and 492 passing yards, being Miami's leading rusher as well with 23 yards. Jack Sorensen set a new Miami record with 283 receiving yards on 14 receptions, which is one shy of the school record, and two touchdowns. So Jack, congratulations on your 283-yard game. I hope you got to keep the ball after that. Miami had a field day with Buffalo on Tuesday. With both teams coming in at 4-5, and five, Miami was out to show that they're better than their record states. Miami started on defense, and the Red Hawks forced the Bulls fumbled, recovered by Sterling Weatherford, giving Miami the ball. On their first offensive play of the game, Miami pulled out a little trickery with a flea flicker where Brett Gabbert found his favorite target, Jack Sorensen, wide open. Sorensen was wide open after the Bulls bit on the fake. Gabbert did an excellent job of spreading the ball around to his receivers that night with four different receivers scoring a touchdown, including Sorensen, Matt Kippenhammer, Jalen Walker, and Andrew Homer. The running backs Keon Mosey and Tracy Kenny also got in on the touchdown fund, each adding a touchdown on the ground, respectively. The final score was 45-10 in favor of Miami. Gabbert finished with 351 passing yards and four touchdowns. His 351 yards combined with 492 yards from last game break the record for most passing yards over a two-game span set by Ben Roethlisberger in 2002. Brett is continuing his quest to prove that he is the best Miami quarterback out there. Walker finished with 136 receiving yards to lead all receivers, but Sorensen finished with 112, eclipsing 100 for the fifth straight game and becoming the sixth Miami wideout to have a 1,000 career receiving yards. Congrats, Jack. I feel like a broken record how many times I say congrats, Jack, over the last three podcasts. Miami will be at home next Tuesday facing Bowling Green and will then travel to Kent State to round out the regular season. MAC tournament play is within their reach. The Miami women's volleyball team had their final two home matches of the season against Ohio University. In the first match last Friday, the two stars of the games weren't the ones you'd normally expect. Sophomores Maggie McCrary and Abby Stratford stepped up in the loss to Ohio. McCrary had 11 kills and 2 blocks, while Stratford had 10 kills and 4 blocks. A good sign for Coach Condit's team, showing that she'll have players ready to step up next season when seniors Sophie Riemersma and Gabby Harper leave the team. Speaking of seniors, their last home match was last Saturday, where they fell to OU in 5 sets. Harper and Riemersma were big for the Red Hawks in a back-and-forth match. OU took the last set 17-15, but it was a hearty effort from the Red Hawks nonetheless. Harper had 14 kills and 3 blocks, while Riemersma added 11 kills of her own and a block. 
Miami will travel to Kent State this week, finishing up the regular season next week with Bowling Green. MAC tournament play will start on November 21st. The Miami women's soccer team finished the regular season 8-8-3, 5-6-0 in MAC play. They had a tough showing in their last match of the season against Ball State, losing 0-2, but they had a strong season overall. They did not qualify for the MAC tournament, where Bowling Green ended up winning it all. Christina DeMarco finished as the Red Hawks' leading scorer with five goals, while Kylie Beinecke, Julia Hoffman, and McKenna Morrison finished right behind DeMarco with four goals apiece. The Red Hawks will look to continue their momentum going into next season. Miami's field hockey team finished the regular season with a big 5-0 win against Bellarmine University. They finished 11-10 overall, 6-1 in the MAC, and they took that momentum into the MAC tournament. In the semifinals, Miami took on OU. Anyone noticing a theme here? A lot of OU in this episode. Anyways, Miami took the 1-0 win on a goal from Paula Pena. She was assisted by Lexi Nugent. Isabel Perese had six saves in net, sealing the win. In the finals, Miami fell behind early but rallied behind a goal from Nugent off an assist from Claudia Negrete-Garcia and another goal from Paula Pena. Miami won their seventh straight MAC title and gained an appearance in the NCAA tournament. First of all, congratulations to the field hockey team. Seven straight is nothing to sneeze at, and they should be getting a lot more attention. This is insane. In the NCAA tournament, they faced Maine, and this was their first ever home NCAA tournament game. They won 3-2 in overtime, and they advanced to the next round. After being down 2 in the second half, Lexi Nugent served the goal scoring for the Red Hawks, making it 2-1. Claudia Negrete Garcia scored the game-tying goal on a rebound attempt. In overtime, it was Nora Breedike who was playing hero with the game winner advancing Miami into the second round. They play Michigan and Ann Arbor today, so good luck. The Miami hockey team traveled to Omaha to take on the ninth-ranked Mavericks. In the first game, Matt Barry, who has two goals on the season, and Thomas Daskus, also with two goals on the season, scored in the opening period. Miami fell behind 3-2, but Matthew Barbolini netted his first goal of the season off of a beautiful pass from Monty Graham to tie it at 3. 19 seconds later, Derek Doshke found the back of the net, which ended up being the game winner, giving Miami their first win over a top-10 team since February 12th. Ludwig Pearson stopped 32 shots on 35 attempts, and the Red Hawks snapped a seven-game win streak for Omaha. Miami dropped the second game to the Mavericks 4-1, with Matthew Barbellini scoring again for the second night in a row. Miami will be home tonight and tomorrow for the first two-game homestand of the year, taking on North Dakota. They will then travel to Denver before Thanksgiving. The men's basketball team won their exhibition match against the Capitol Commons 69-44. After a shaky first half, the Red Hawks came into the second half looking like a completely different team, gaining momentum and never looking back. The Red Hawks returned all five starters from a season ago, including Makai Larry, Dede Grant, who was voted All-Mac preseason second team, Maja White, Delonte Brown, and Precious Aya. They opened the regular season at Georgia Tech on Tuesday, stunning the Yellow Jackets 72-69, thanks to senior guard Makai Larry's go-ahead bucket late in the game. Larry's got ice in his veins. Don't know what else to tell you. Larry led Miami scorers with 23 points and added 3 rebounds and 2 assists. Dede Grant added 15 points of his own and had 5 rebounds and 2 assists as well. Delonte Brown was dominant on the boards, grabbing 9 and scoring 12 points in the second half alone. His front court mate, Precious Aya, had 10 points. The Red Hawks have a four-game homestand starting with Lamar University on Saturday. The women's basketball team tipped off their season with an exhibition against Lock Haven University. Looking like they were in mid-season form, Miami won 73-43, a huge win. 
Led behind Peyton Scott, Miami took on Valparaiso University on Wednesday. Peyton Scott was second-team All-Mac a year ago, averaging 21.2 points, 6.7 rebounds, 5.2 assists, and 2.7 steals per game last season. She ranked in the top 10 in six different MAC categories and scored in double digits in 23 of 24 contests. If you guys can't tell, I really enjoy the sport of basketball. So once basketball season gets rolling, I will be having a ton of stats and a ton of just basketball content because that is my favorite sport. Miami has a two-game road trip playing the University of Illinois on Sunday and then playing Xavier next Wednesday. All right, so now I'm going to bring in a good friend of mine, Matt Kruger. He's going to help me out with some of this NFL stuff that's been going down in the last couple of weeks. So, Matt, if you want to take a minute to introduce yourself to everybody out there, uh, do it now. Hi, I'm Matthew Kruger. I am a freshman along with Ted, and I'm just one of his buddies that's played sports with him. Kruger and I have been hanging out for the first couple of months of the year, and I'm really excited to get him on the pod as he's one of my closest buddies here. He's a big NFL guy, big 49ers guy. We'll get into that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about the Oakland Raiders and the months. That's a situation. The months they've been having. Uh, For starters, I mentioned it on the first podcast. John Gruden was fired as the head coach or resigned in disgrace, however you want to put it, uh, as the head coach of the Oakland Raiders because of his misogynistic, racist, and other types of remarks. Just recently, the Raiders cut two more of their 2020 first round picks that brings it to four of the five 2020 draft picks that the Raiders had have now been cut or traded, including just recently Henry Ruggs and Damon Arnett. And Kruger, if you want to get into a little bit more about Henry Ruggs and Damon Arnett, what happened there? So yeah, the Henry Ruggs situation is, I don't even know how to put it. It's just, it's just interesting. He decided to drink and drive and I don't know the exact speeds, but I know it was upwards of 100 at least, right? I think it was upwards of 146 or something like 146. that. 146. Oh, I didn't even know it got that high. I just saw the traffic cam footage, and he was flying. Yeah, if you haven't seen the traffic cam footage, it's just him just speeding past the... Yeah, in like a blink of an eye. Y- y- I mean, yeah, you blink it, you miss it. Yeah, exactly. And then he ended up tailboning someone, and it ultimately led to the death of the girl that he hit, and just obviously serious injuries with him and his girlfriend. Ruggs is currently facing some charges right now, and as for Damon Arnett, what's happening there? Another another interesting situation. He decided to hold up a gun on camera, and then I don't know exactly who he was threatening, but he was threatening someone, and then he proceeded to say, I'll kill you. I'm only five minutes away, which, in my opinion, why why would you ever say that, you know? Like, even if you're, like, not NFL, you're a professional of any kind, it's just... You never say that. You never threaten someone with a gun and then post it or send it to someone because it's obviously not going not gonna to end well. Yeah, so obviously we have that interaction with Damon Arnett. And it, it's so sad to see because the Raiders were just coming into their own this year. Derek Carr was having a really, really good year. Josh Jacobs and Kenyon Drake were having a really nice back and forth in yeah, the backfield. Yeah, finally, finally turning it around within the last like month and a half. It just went straight downhill. Just, I mean, it, it's been... It's just been terrible to watch as not only, you know, a fan of the NFL, but a fan of, you know, Derek Carr. He's been one of the most underrated quarterbacks, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And they it's not like they are they don't have, like, weapons. They do. They have plenty of weapons. They just haven't been able to utilize those weapons. The one remaining draft pick from the 2020 draft that's still on the Raiders is Brian Edwards. And you got to be wondering 
is he going to do something? Because it seems like all of these players have done something that have made them get cut or get traded because I, I believe Tanner Muse, he was cut earlier in the season, like on his birthday or something. You know, it boggles the mind. Let's hope that he can realize, you know, I'm the last one left. Hopefully I can stay on the Raiders <laughs> and not go to jail or get cut. So let's just hope he keeps that in mind. I mean, the Raiders are a bit of a mess right now. They just lost to the New York Giants. That's my team right there, so go Giants. In a game that, I mean, no offense to the Giants, they really shouldn't have won. Derek Carr looked uncharacteristic. He was thrown two interceptions to the NFC Defensive Player of the Week, Xavier McKinney. But it just didn't look like the Raiders, and I think a lot of that has to do with like the mental side of what's going on off the field. I, I think the mental side probably has a bigger effect than we might think it does because if constantly left and right your coach is going down for a scandal, then your other two close players go down for a scandal. You're just kind of just thinking, like, what's what's going on? It's it's honestly such a uh, such a tough place for the Raiders to be in, especially when Al Davis, former owner, was so progressive in his ways and trying to kind of clean the culture of the Raiders and make the Raiders what they are, this kind of grit and grind team. But yeah, just for a new stadium, just wasn't enough, I guess. I guess you could say. The Las Vegas life caught up to them, I guess. Yeah, which was which was kind of expected. So moving on to Kruger's favorite team, I talked a little bit about my favorite team, the Giants, and moving on to Kruger's favorite team, the San Francisco 49ers. There's been a ton of questions surrounding the San Francisco 49ers all year, and the first one I want to get into is the quarterback situation. Kruger, as a fan of the 49ers, do you truly believe in Jimmy Garoppolo, or do you think it's time to shift to Trey Lance? Over the years, you know, I I really liked Jimmy G. I thought he was a really good quarterback. Completion percentage was relatively good. And then, at least over the last year or so, year and a half, I've kind of noticed that he's not really the Jimmy G I once thought he was. And after watching him play, and he just he just can't really stay healthy. That's another big part of it. And I feel like it might be kind of time to switch gears into a little bit more Trey Lance. Did you like the Trey Lance pick when that happened? Because I know, for starters, a lot of people were surprised when I mean, I, I mean, hey, I was surprised when they traded up yes, to number I was, three. I was very surprised. And then selected Trey Lance when a, and when everybody was saying, oh, they're connected to Mac Jones. Like, this is going to be a Mac Jones pick at number three. And then they go Trey Lance. I honestly, I would have, personally, I would have preferred Justin Fields. Because I think Justin Fields with the type of wide receivers and running backs we have would be really effective. And we have, our offensive line has always been decently good. And as the same it is for this year. So I feel like with Justin Fields and his speed, we could probably do some really good stuff. You guys locked out Trent Williams to that big contract, and you know after his whole ordeal, but he's been really solid on that. Uh, yeah, he's had he's had some pretty nice pancakes. <laughs> Kruger, former offensive lineman yourself, loving loving those pancakes. Yeah, I'm loving them. There's also you know another headline that's been swirling around about the 49ers, and it's is Kyle Shanahan the right man for the job? We've seen him for a couple of years now, and. I believe I saw some stat the other day that him and Chip Kelly, former San Francisco 49ers coach, have the same coaching Oh, I, I did see that. I, I think that it was about 44. They, they're each at about 44% for their I thought it was career. like a 0.44, I thought. Yeah, 0.44, you know, yeah. multiply it by 100 is 44, something like that. But, you know, you saw them in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Yeah, but unfortunately we weren't able to bring it home. <laughs> the, the whole Patrick Mahomes experience. But in what you've seen in Kyle Shanahan this year, do you think he deserves to stay another another year? Personally, I would I would give him another year because I feel like 
Robert Sala left, our defensive coordinator, and he was, I feel like he was a really key factor in our success, and he's, I think he's with the New York Jets? Yeah, yeah. head coach of the New York Jets. So, I feel like if we could kind of restructure, maybe add a couple more, like, good coaches, it kind of, like, boosts him up in a way, almost. The the one other thing I think about the 49ers that I wanted to bring up was the way they're using Trey Lance. I mean, you'd be, you know, more knowledgeable than I am on this topic, but they would bring him in and they'd have him throw a couple touchdown passes here and there yeah, and then they'd sub him out. usually like second or third down, usually red zone, 30-yard line, something around that, which I feel like is almost a waste because I feel like he has a lot more potential for just red zone passes and scrambles. The the 49ers right now, they, you know, their whole quarterback situation, but they recently just pulled out of the OBJ sweepstakes. So before I, I we get that, more yes. into the OBJ sweepstakes, what did, what did you think about the 49ers pulling out? I'm personally okay with it because I feel like we have enough, we have a good enough wide receiver core to do it well enough without him. Obviously, it would have been a plus because OBJ is OBJ, and you, you can't go wrong with OBJ. But I feel like we honestly have a solid enough core that we can manage without him. Getting into the OBJ sweepstakes, where do you see him going? Because I believe the report that came out sometime this week is that his top three teams are the Chiefs, the Saints, and the Packers. But do you see him going to one of those three teams, or do you see like a dark horse coming out of nowhere? Personally, I, I could honestly see him in all three of those. I feel like he might gravitate towards the Chiefs if possible just because you got Patrick Mahomes, you got that offensive line, you got the whole wide receiver core. So I feel like if he can, he'll probably pursue there. I feel like the Saints might not be a most vital option just because their quarterback situation is kind of shaky right now. Yeah, without Jameis Winston, may not be the best option for exactly, someone like OBJ exactly. who's just dealt with someone like Baker Mayfield where he's not getting Very the ball. Consistent. He just He just needs someone who can just throw the ball to him. I, I could see him with the Bills just because Josh Allen's got a cannon. Yeah, I honestly, that's a dark horse team that I just, I don't think I ever thought about. I was always thinking Ravens or, I mean, hey, maybe he finds his way back to the Giants. But the the Bills is really interesting because they're slipping in the standings right now. Yes. They, they started very well, and they're so, just slowly declining. Having Stephon Diggs on the on one side, Odell on the other side, and then having Emmanuel Sanders in the slot. like That might be really good for them. That just adds so much level to their offense. And they already have a pretty solid defense, so it would only be adding to their overall. I mean, that's that came out of nowhere. I mean, I was thinking Packers for, for starters. That was one of the teams that, that mm-hmm. he said. I mean, he'd be the clear number two. Yeah. I don't think anybody's you know anybody's saying that OBJ right now is currently better than Devontae Adams. I would agree. So he'd be the clear number two, and then he'd have, you know, hopefully Aaron Rodgers, but we all know what's happening with him and the whole COVID, COVID situation. And the whole uh, immunized versus vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So it would be very interesting to see when he signs, if he signs with the Packers. But it also leads a lot of questions if he goes to the Packers because both OBJ and Devontae Adams would be free agents next year. And they're both deserving of pretty hefty contracts, I'd say. I would I, I would also agree with that, especially with Devontae's season this year. Oh, Devontae Adams has just been off the charts. Yeah, he's, he's been off the charts this season. I mean, he's fantasy points galore. Yeah, he catches pretty much everything thrown his way. Doesn't matter who is his quarterback. Exactly. But the OBJ sweepstakes should be really interesting. I've heard a lot of Seahawks rumors as well. That, to me, feels like a very odd fit. Yeah, it does, because I feel like with DK and Tyler Lockett, they already make a pretty good duo as it is. So I feel like if you add someone of OBJ's caliber, it might kind of throw that off. 
Exactly, exactly. And the run blocking there would be terrible. Even with Russell Wilson coming back and him having the ability to kind of scramble out of the pocket, whoever your running back is in Seattle, because Chris Carson is, seems to always be injured, mm-hmm. if you have Odell, Tyler Lockett, and DK Metcalf all trying to run block, I don't think you're getting anywhere. Yeah, probably not. I just see the Bills as a really good spot for him. Just with Josh Allen's arm and his accuracy, I feel like you could put in that overhead one-hand spot and maybe we can get a part two. Part two of the OBJ catch. I remember watching that catch over and over again as, for a, as, years. A, as a younger was the as a younger thing kid. for like three years. Everybody tried it. I mean, me, me and my best friend, we'd be in the front yard in the middle of like December and November just chucking the ball, just trying to go three fingers. And would you get it one out of a thousand? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I mean, more like one out of every 10,000 throws. I mean, it, what he did was incredible. Um, I mean, it stunted his rise to fame, really. Or it started uh, his rise to fame. I think that was probably the reason he got... Like, he was always good, but that really just put him out there. Honestly. I mean, we saw it at his LSU days, but this, on another level, against the Cowboys in prime time, yeah. just, I mean, it was just over, like, over the top, just out of the charts. But with the whole OBJ thing, you know, the Browns... I don't know what happened with the Browns. Like, it looked... I, it just wasn't... I just don't think it was a good fit. Like, they just didn't click. Because from, from personal experience, just if the team doesn't work well together, it's just, no matter how good you are, it's just not going to do well. They just they looked so good going into it. I mean, as a Giants fan, I'm happy because we won the trade. Yeah. Uh, Jabril Peppers, and then the draft picks of Dexter Lawrence, Sexy Dexy, that's my guy right there, and O'Shane Zimenez. We just... We won the trade, but, you know, as an NFL fan... You just kind of wanted to see it work because the Browns are just such a heartwarming story. Tim Jarvis Landry, Nick Chubb, that could have been that could have been lethal. Could have been lethal. Shoulda, coulda, woulda been lethal. And you know, as we're kind of coming to the end of this this NFL segment, uh, I we briefly mentioned the Bills kind of sliding in the standings. So, what are some of the other teams that you think we should be hitting the panic button on? And, and are the Bills a team we should be hitting the panic button on? Because we've seen that the Patriots are now a half game back, and you know anything goes with Bill Belichick. I would probably say the Chiefs is my biggest concern, just because you go from Super Bowl, Super Bowl, to the performance that Patrick Mahomes is having. Like it's not the Patrick we know, not as accurate. The the one hop throws don't seem to be working for him as well. So I feel like if they could just get back in their rhythm, they could be something good again. It is concerning to see that Tyron Matthews on an expiring contract, specifically on their defense, they still have Chris Jones and and Frank the Shark Clark locked up to big-term deals. But it just seems like the rest of the defense is just guys that have been kind of picking up off the street. It's I mean, it's, it's disappointing to see because I'm sure you've seen the memes about Brady ending the Chiefs dynasty before it even started. I mean, there's something to say about that, too. Because Brady punched the, the nail in the wood for them. There's really nothing you can do about Brady. It's just it's just Tom Brady. I mean, he's he's inevitable as much as I he hate, is. To, hate to say it. As much as everyone hates him or <laughs> loves him. It's just you can't get away from Tom Brady. Oh, man. He's he's going to play till he's 60 years old. I, I think, personally, I think he'll go till he wins 10 rings. Because if he can win one in, like this year, he's going to be like, I have eight. Why not fill the hands, you know? I mean, talking about the Bucks, I don't want to say I'm hitting the panic button on them, but I'm also not believing wholeheartedly that this is still the same team that they once were. They've 
been decimated by injuries in their in their secondary, and they're getting some players back. I believe Sean Murphy Bunting comes off the IR sometime either for this week or for next week. But they've had two wins against teams that are above 500. So they're not playing the best teams, but not the worst teams, and they just they just haven't been able to play to their full capacity. I mean, you just lost to the regular season Saints with Trevor Simeon as your quarterback. Shouldn't that be ringing some alarms? Definitely. It definitely should be. They should definitely be like, you know, okay, we kind of playoffs aren't too far away if you think about it. We got to kind of start getting back in the groove so we can hopefully go for round two in the Super Bowl. Are they still Super Bowl contenders or do you think the Rams knock them out? Oh, I've never thought about that before. Because I, I feel like the Rams definitely have potential because Matthew. I feel like Matthew Stafford is a really good fit for the Rams. I love that fit. It's not like Matthew Stafford is on a team that stinks now and is not using his to his full potential, and it's not like Matthew Stafford is in the AFC. So, mm-hmm. realistically, and what I think the NFL wants is they want to see a Rams Buccaneers NFC Championship game. I think that would be a great game to watch. I would love to see that game. I'd love to see Matthew Stafford finally have some playoff success. So would I, because I don't. Has he even had that much playoff success? I think like one win. Him yeah, and Megatron. I didn't, I didn't think it was very, very high. Him and him and Megatron was like one win, and I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. But is Ma- like Matthew Stafford, if he gets this playoff success, does that solidify his Hall of Fame case, or does he have to win the Super Bowl? Because I mean, personally, I think he's like a borderline Hall of Famer. I think it depends on who the voters are, but. I think if he gets this playoff success, even if he just makes the Super Bowl, I think that you know fully solidifies his case. I would have to agree to that to an extent because I feel like, although winning a Super Bowl isn't the only thing, I feel like it's also a big part. But I feel like if he could get into the Super Bowl, maybe even win, I feel like I would agree he would definitely solidify it. But he still needs to be putting up good numbers for that to actually set into motion. All right, so that's all the time we got today with Matthew Krueger. I'm going to quickly shift into underrated. This is NFL-themed. Today's segment of underrated is focusing on the Tennessee Titans. When fantasy football owners saw Derrick Henry needed surgery on his toe or his foot or whatever it is and would be out for a decent chunk of the last half of the season, their hearts sank. So Derrick Henry, he goes down, and he's just been the workhorse for this Titans team. They call him King Henry for a reason. He was on pace to break Eric Dickerson's single-season rushing record of 2,105 yards. And through eight games, he was just shy of 1,000. I think he was at 937, if I remember correctly. And he looked to be just utterly unstoppable. And then the injury happened. It set him in. And with him out, a ton of NFL fans thought the Titan window was closed for the playoffs. They, a lot of NFL fans just thought they were going to take a dive off a cliff. And on Sunday Night Football, which is the main part of this underrated segment, is that the Titans, they found a new identity, their defense. The defense was incredible that game. And they probably won't sustain this pace for the entire rest of the season, but it's good to see that this Titans defense, which people have called really mediocre, really soft. It was really good for Titans fans to see the defense step up. And their offense in that game, I think they only totaled like 147 total yards of offense or something like really, really ridiculously low like that. And, you know, they need to step it up. But it's a good sign that their defense is stepping up. And the offense, they just went out and signed Adrian Peterson. And in that Sunday Night Football game, he had a one-yard touchdown rush to get him to 125. But, uh, you know, as we go on, we'll see P. 
Peterson included in the offense more. But again, the main story is his defense. This defense was stout on Sunday night. They were led by Denico Autry, Jeffrey Simmons, and Kevin Byard. And they made Matt Stafford, who we were just talking about, look like Matt Stafford when he was playing for the Lions, where he was throwing interceptions, he was uncomfortable, taking sacks. The defense is stepping up in Derrick Henry's absence. And I just wonder if it'll be enough for the Titans to stay in the playoff race and keep afloat with Henry out. But that's all the time we have for today on Pressbox Thoughts. I want to give a huge, huge shout out to Matthew Kruger. He helped me so much in this episode, and I can't thank him enough because, you know, he's taking his time and helping me out. So, Matt, thank you so much. Yeah, glad I could help. It was, it was fun to be on the podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Pressbox Thoughts, and I hope to have you guys back next time. Signing off, Ted Brennan. This episode of Pressbox Thoughts was produced and edited by Ted Brennan and Sarah Grace Hayes with supervising production by our editor-in-chief, Tim Carlin. Our music is by Sam Tarabellini. That's all for Pressbox Thoughts. Tune in to our next episode out on the Miami Student SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts in two weeks.